Good morning, everybody. Um, for those who don't know me, um, I'm Dan. I'm one of the elders here and on the staff team. Um, yeah, I'll be about for coffee later. Come and say hi if you don't know me. Um, as Graham said, we're starting a new series in First Kings today, and we've uh, called it Awesome God, A Journey with Elijah. <clears throat> so over the summer, we'll be focusing on Elijah, but with the goal of better understanding God. And uh, this week the title was supposed to be uh, The God Who Calls, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer slightly off that path today, so don't tell Reverend McRae, okay, when he comes back. So to begin with, we need to understand where we are in the story of God's people. I've had to do this quite a few times recently. I seem to always be talking at the start of a series, so I'm doing all the background and all the, all the digging work at the start. So apologies that we'll have to do a bit of that to begin with. So First and Second Kings tells the story of the line of kings who followed King David. It's, it's quite interesting that uh, we're, the kids are starting on First uh, Samuel today and with King Saul, the first of the kings. Um, and we saw a little bit from the video how that goes wrong. And, and that's a repeated path. You'll see that repeating throughout. So be, be, following King David, we had King Solomon, his, his son. Um, and for a short while, things look positive. King Solomon asks God for wisdom and he rebuilds the temple. So far, so good. However, then he starts to marry foreign women and bring their worship of their foreign gods into Israel. Not so good. He hoards wealth, abuses slaves, and generally moves away from the commands of God. Now, apart from the obvious, we can look back to Deuteronomy 17, where we see God's commands set out for how the kings should act, and Solomon doesn't match up. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says, He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon did exactly these two things, so he clearly strayed, despite the Lord having appeared to him and warned him of this type of behavior. And after he dies, his son Rehoboam acts similarly. He uh, leads Israel to split in two. And this line of David continues um, to rule in the southern kingdom. This is where it gets a little bit technical. Rehoboam rules in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. While Jer Jeroboam, so there's Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam, I know this is a bit tricky, um, Jeroboam rules in the northern kingdom, which becomes known as Israel. And it's in Israel in the north where our reading today is situated. Now, Jeroboam is important to our reading today because his name comes up in the passage, as we're told that Ahab considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Seven kings, and at least 47 years later, these sins were still noteworthy. So to summarize Jeroboam's reign, he was worried about losing the support of his people because he worried that they'd be inclined to travel to Jerusalem in the south to worship, just as God had commanded them to. So in doing this, he worried that they would then change their allegiance to Rehoboam. So he created a false version of worship, that would look similar to what they were used to, um, but was twisting God's word to suit his political needs. So basically he used religion, or more accurately, false religion, to protect himself politically. Does that sound familiar to any of us? First Kings goes on to talk briefly about the various kings ruling in both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And a few of the southern kings stay true and faithful to God's word but none of the northern kings stay faithful. 
God raises up various prophets along the way to come and speak his word and warn and hold the rulers accountable. But the kings continue in their corrupted paths. And this brings us very roughly to where we are in the passage today and King Ahab, <coughs> just before we meet Elijah, who will be the, the kind of subject we'll be following over the next few weeks. So in verse 29 of, of chapter 16 of First Kings, we hear, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Do we have any Man City fans here today? Are Johnny Doak's ears perking up a little bit? About 20 years ago, Man City had a player called Alf Inge Halland. Does anybody remember him? Any football fans remember Alf Inge Halland? Shirley Green remembers him, yeah. He, he was a mediocre midfielder, right? For those who aren't football fans, he was a mediocre player, um, mostly known for a bit of a spat with Roy Keane where they both made some dirty tackles on each other. But in all fairness, to play at that level of football, you have to be exceptional. Roll on 2022, and Man City have just signed his son, Erling, for about 60 million euros. Now, this boy is top-notch. Erling Haaland is a future superstar, and at 21 years of age, he knows it. And he's already surpassing the talents and the accomplishments of his father. And it's a bit like this in 1 Kings 16. Because back in verse 25, we read that Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. As, as we've noted, the kings ruling through Israel were all bad. Then Omri comes along and he's the worst. And then his son comes along and says, step aside, father, I'm going to go one better. And we get some detail of, of how he acted. In th verse 31, it says, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and he built, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole did more, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we, we've talked about Jeroboam. He was the first king in Israel after the north-south split. Um, his sins were noteworthy in twisting worship, ignoring God's instruction to use religion to benefit himself all the while leading his people away from God's path. Well, Ahab considered these sins trivial. Using the worship of God for personal and political gain was one thing, but Ahab was openly defiant of God. He instituted the worship of a false god in Baal, setting up an altar and building a temple to him. He set up an Asherah pole, which was likely a representation of, his, of Baal's consort or queen, so another form of false worship. So Jeroboam was breaking the second commandment and setting up graving images to worship, and in doing so was causing a lot of damage. Ahab was going straight in at the first commandment, actively putting another god, small g god, before the Lord. Now, we don't read the, the Twelve Commandments as like a degrees of severity. That's not how it works. But sin in its most simplistic terms is turning away from God, not giving him his place as number one, not 
refusing to give him his place as, as ruler over everything in our lives. In essence, all of sin is breaking that first commandment. And Ahab is defiantly leading the nation in a, in a direction that's diametrically opposed to God's ways. He flies in the face of this first commandment. So we have Ahab, bad guy, really, really bad guy. Then we have a specific incident in verse 34. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel built, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abram. And he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua at Nun. By the way, if I'm getting some of the pronunciations wrong, Graham was probably right. So this Hiel has rebuilt Jericho, which would have required the instruction or at least the permission of King Ahab. And in the process, he loses both his firstborn son and his youngest. This is tragic. However, it's also a clear fulfillment of God's word and a sign that God is in command of the situation despite King Ahab moving the nation in a direction that's away from God. Because you see, if we look back to Joshua chapter 6, where, where the walls of Jericho came down and God's people were given the city, just as he promised, we read in Joshua six twenty six that at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations at the cost of his youngest. He will set up its gates. So First Kings 16.34 is a clear, direct fulfillment of God's word. God's spoken 500 years later. What he said came true. Do, do we have patience like that? I, mean, I don't think anybody was sitting around waiting patiently thinking, ooh, some stage, firstborn son or youngest son are going to die. Nobody's waiting for that to be fulfilled, but it should make us think about how we feel when we have to wait for some of God's promises to be fulfilled. On to chapter 17. It's worth noting at this point that when the writers of the Bible, when they were writing things, they didn't put in chapter 17. They didn't write the verse numbers in. That's something that's been added later. It's helpful to think of verse 1 in relation to the end of chapter 16. It's, it's not a, this isn't 34 ends, then chapter 17 starts. Because verse 1 is in relation to what's been happening. So bear that in mind as we read it. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. So now we have our introduction to Elijah. And isn't it grand? Look at this CV. Look at his experience. God had obviously been preparing this man for such a time as this. We read Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. That's it. That's, that's literally all we're told. No spoilers, but this guy is a bit of a big deal. We're going to spend the summer looking at Elijah. We're devoting our summer's teaching to this prophet of God. And there's no background. He's one of these characters that we probably all remember from Sunday school. The one who was there and asked God and fire fell on this soaking wet altar to embarrass the silly prophets of Baal. And yet this is all we're giving as background. He seemingly comes out of nowhere. 
And this is because Elijah isn't what's important here. What's important is the word of God. And this is our hope as we go through these summer months walking alongside Elijah's journey, alongside his story. We want it to be clear that the story isn't about Elijah. It isn't about the kings. It's not even about us. This story is about our awesome God, the God who's holy, whose word is powerful, and who is truth. And as we'll see over the coming weeks, he's the God who provides who commands obedience, who answers, who communicates, who is just, and who is eternal. So what is God saying through Elijah? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So first thing to note, this comes true. We see that in verse seven. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So confirmation that God is speaking through Elijah. There's no other way he could have known the drought was coming. Secondly, this is fulfillment of the word of God through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Verse 16 we read, Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. You see, the words spoken through Elijah here are an announcement of God's judgment on an idolatrous nation. He'd spoken the warning through Moses years before, and God is true to his word. He doesn't accept worshiping other gods, and he's angry. We love being reminded of God's word when it reassures us, don't we? I'm not going to make jokes again about rainbows and fluffy fluffy kittens and uh, little fancy verses that say nice things. But I have a little devotional at home called 40 Days of Grace. Okay, And there are three others in the series, 40 Days of Hope, 40 Days of Faith, and 40 Days of Love. But they haven't gone around yet to writing 40 Days of Judgment. We don't like talking about God's anger and judgment, do we? But he is a jealous God. There's no room for another. Just like in a marriage here on earth, there's no room for us to have more eyes than the bride for the bridegroom and the bridegroom for the bride. And we, God's people, the church, are his bride. We can only have eyes for one bridegroom. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I could go on. There are numerous examples of how we're told that God is jealous, that he demands our undivided loyalty. Elijah has been sent as God's messenger to tell Ahab that he is angry and that we've ignored his commands to be loyal. And this is their punishment. It's divine judgment on behavior that was strictly prohibited. So these are the consequences. It's fair. In fact, it's good parenting. These are the children of God after all. 
One of the most difficult things about parenting um, is discipline. And in part, that's because normally as parents to discipline, we need to take something away and we, and we suffer as a result. No parent wants to take away screen time. It's when we get a break. No parent wants to keep kids inside when it's sunny. Go play. No parent wants to listen to it when we've had to cancel dessert for the day. We had to do a little bit of that the last couple of days. But the more challenge in part is making sure we're disciplining for disciplining for the right reasons and for the right end goal. So we're providing punishment so that our, children's le- our children learn. So that they don't continue in the wrong ways. So they don't end up in danger sometimes. But to do that, we need to stick to our guns. We need to follow through with whatever punishment we've told them there will be. God is the perfect father. So he's not messing around when it comes to this. When he says there will be consequences, there will be consequences. Alongside this is a bit of a, an interesting aside. Beale was known as God of fertility or Lord of the rain clouds. So by stating that there would be no rain or dew, God is openly mocking this false God. He's saying, your God's a nonsense. He has no power, and I'm going to prove it by controlling the one thing that he said to be master of. We're going to see a little bit more of this mocking in a couple of weeks on Mount Carmel. Verse 2 of chapter 17 says, Then the words of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread in the morning, and bread and, bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. So God now tells the prophet to leave the people and then miraculously feeds him via the miracle of ravens, which were an unclean animal. They were going to bring food to Elijah. Next week, we're going to read about how God provides for Elijah through a widow. This is a combination of unclean and unlikely sources for his servant. And it reminds us a little bit of the miraculous provision of manna from from heaven for Israel in the time of Moses as well. But this is a little bit different because now it's not God's people who are being provided for, for, but just his servant, just the prophet. Now in telling Elijah to leave the people, something that's easy to miss is that in doing that, he's removing his word from the people. And there's more, this is more confirmation that this is divine judgment. We read about it elsewhere in 1 Samuel and again in Psalms and later in Amos where God warns of sending a famine of hearing the word of the Lord in his judgment of his people. So God has removed his physical provision in sending a drought. But more importantly, he's removed his word from his people. Meanwhile, he's sustaining his prophet outside of Israel. We also see an example of, of, of Elijah's trust in God through this. God says, go, I'm going to do this strange thing miraculously. Um, you're going to have to trust me because it's an unclean animal. And Elijah goes. It didn't make sense. There's no, ra- there's no rain. Ravens are unclean. 
It's away from the people, but he did what the Lord had told him. In verse 7, we're told sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So again, this confirms the word of the Lord came true. There was no rain, so the brook that God sent Elijah to eventually dried up. He's feeling the wider effects of this punishment. So, we have an awful, false-worshipping God in Ahab who's defiantly ignored God's word, taken the people in an opposed direction away from the Lord. God, in being true to his word, has sent Elijah, whose background doesn't seem to matter, to deliver the message that there is judgment and it's being dealt. God then sends Elijah away, spiritually removing his word from the people while they receive this punishment, while miraculously providing for his servant. So, what do we take away from this? There are a few things we could focus on about Elijah. We could think about God's provision for him, working through an unclean animal, thinking, giving him food throughout a drought. We could think about God's way of seemingly choosing unimportant people to do his work. We could think about Elijah's trust and faithfulness to God's word, speaking boldly to power and heading out to nowhere at his command. These are all great topics. But this passage isn't about Elijah. He's not the main event. We're going to learn through his life, through his service to God over the summer, but it's not about him. This series is about our awesome God. So what are we learning about our Lord? As we're introduced to this prophet Elijah, this mouthpiece of God to King Ahab, I want us to focus on his word, on what we learn about this God whose word is truth. And I'll keep this brief. We see throughout this passage that God's word, spoken either directly to individuals or through his prophet, is trustworthy. When God says something, it will happen. Look at the examples we have in the passage. Back in Joshua, we read that whoever rebuilds the, the, the city of Jericho will lose their firstborn to the foundations and their youngest to the gates. A specific punishment for breaking the oath. And this comes perfectly true. Deuteronomy told us he would shut up the heavens so that it would not rain as God's judgment on the people for worshipping false gods. And this is exactly what happens. This displays his power over nature, over science, over the elements. He tells Elijah exactly where to go and exactly how he would feed for him, how he would provide for him. And he does it. God controls the birds of the sky to bring meat and bread for him. I have to ask, who baked the bread? Where did that, where, how did that happen? God carries authority over life, death, the birds, the clouds, seemingly even over some form of heavenly oven. So this brings us two challenges. Firstly, we need to trust in his word. And Elijah has been a good example of this. God called him to speak authority in God's name, and he did it. Told him to go to a stream whose origins are slightly unknown. We struggle to even find that place, and he, he did it. He trusted God would provide. But we're not Elijah, are we? None of us are likely to be made into one of God's major prophets. 
It's unlikely that we'll hear directly from God. But what we have is this. We have God's word, which is not something that Elijah had. He didn't have the benefit of this written word. And what we have the benefit of knowing is that long after Elijah, God sent Jesus. His word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became the perfect prophet to herald the good news of God's coming kingdom and the freedom offered through faith in him. So we need to trust in this God whose word is truth, who we know fulfills his promises. And secondly, we're called to obey. The story of 1 Kings makes it abundantly clear that our God is holy. And he takes rebellion from his commands very seriously. Sin is a serious thing. The wages of sin is death. We often joke about preachers on soapboxes in the street, uh, ranting about fire and brimstone, telling us we're all going to burn in hell. We used to pass a couple of regularly in East Belfast, and this country has not been short of a few over the years. But often in truth, we don't like to talk about sin. We dress it up that, as, as being that we don't like to talk about, it's, it's an old-fashioned term. We don't like using old-fashioned terms. People don't understand that anymore. So let's talk about error or misdeeds, maybe faults or mistakes, getting it wrong. We'll soften up the language a little bit. But our God is holy. He isn't soft about sin. How does the Bible talk about sin? Immorality, ungodliness, corruption, wickedness, evil. In reality, we hate the thought of offending anyone. Talking about sin is offensive. Who wants to hear that what they're doing is wrong? Especially in a culture that tells us whatever we choose or whatever we desire is right for us. So we butter up the language a little bit. But we don't get to choose what's right for us. We don't get to choose what's holy. Only God does. And he says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's gracious goodness in offering us freedom from death through his Son does not negate the seriousness of sin. If anything, it highlights the seriousness of sin. And it should draw us to gaze into the beauty of Jesus and what he did for us. And then in disgust to look at our faults and mistakes where we've got that wrong and instead see them as wickedness, corruption and evil in his eyes. And then we should sprint toward Jesus, open, forgiving arms crying out for the strength of the Holy Spirit for us to cease, to turn, and to worship all the more. We have a God who is holy and who demands holiness. And we see that his word carries authority and power. Not only speaks truth, but it is truth. Praise God, he's also a God who calls us to him for a solution. 
for forgiveness because he was holy in our place. We're called to be holy. We're called to obey. And that means turning to Jesus. We're going to be looking at Elijah's story throughout the summer. And hopefully you've gotten a feel this morning for where we're at, what's going on. I hope I've provided a clear idea of the people involved, of the sins of the kings, and of who Elijah is, and his trust in God, who was working and speaking through him. But most of all, I hope you get a taste of this awesome God. The God who is king of kings, a God whose word carries authority and is truth, a God who is holy and demands holiness. And as we learn more about this prophet who spoke God's word, my deepest hope is that it will make us fall in love more and more with his word and in doing so become more enchanted with his son, his word made flesh who dwelt among us. Unlike worldly kings, striving after power and riches, feeling their people and inevitably being dethroned, he humbled himself to become weak, suffered on our behalf, so that we could have the riches in heaven. He never has and never will fail us. And as our Lord and King, one day we're going to be with him and share in the airship to his throne. This is our awesome God.